sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Let me stop eating. You know, because someone's going to leave us a bad review for that. <laughs> yeah, they will. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We exist to set straight the rumor and innuendo around your favorite bands and your favorite songs. My name is Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome. And a few weeks back on the show, we were uh, celebrating the life of Tom T. Hall. And as a part of that, we got down a rabbit hole talking about uh, talking about Dr. Demento. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's happening. Well, we heard from a lot of folks who were like, when do we get the Dr. Demento episode? Uh, which I feel like is a, is a pretty good ask. It's important to me because what a lot of people know this, and I think people know this if they know us or have listened to much of our, our output over the years, but we sort of started in comedy as well. Like we're rock guys at the core, but we've been in uh, sort of in circles with comedians and with funny people uh, for a lot of our career. So comedy and music where they meet is a, a special, important place to us. And so it makes sense to sort of talk about not just comedy and rock and roll, but specifically this idea of parody that we started to see really emerge through the Dr. Demento show. And, and what we were talking about with that Tom T. Hall episode was specifically a parody of one of those songs, right? Right, yeah. So let me ask you this. How far back do you think parody music goes? I, I have an example of a very old one. When you go on the tour at at Sun Records, they, they tell you about, um, I think it's a parody of Hound Dog that Sam had someone sing. And he got sued and nearly got sued out of existence, and just got he just was lucky enough that that didn't happen to him. Really? But I know, yeah, yeah. And I thought that was fascinating, you know. But I'm sure that wasn't the earliest because that was the '50s. Well, yeah. First, for our purposes, we should define what we mean by parody song, I guess. Because, like I said, I want to narrow it down and not just talk about funny music because there's a lot of that. But when we're talking about parody, the Collins English Dictionary calls it, quote, a humorous piece of music which imitates the style of a well-known person or represents a familiar situation in an exaggerated way. Um, it should be noted for real music nerds, like compositional music school type of people, uh, parody of music can be done without humor, which this is something I learned. I did not know this. In the 16th century, there was what we refer to as parody masses, and this is church music. But think of it as like reference to the greater body of work, almost like a modern day sample, but we're talking old school church music. Uh, So in its earliest uses, the term was meant to signify the borrowing of something musical, but it didn't take that long for it to become something funny and for the funny side of parody to seep in. So I got it. We're going back a little bit farther than 1950. If you want to hear what is largely considered the first parody song, this is it. That's our boy, uh, J.S. Bach. <laughs> you, you might know his first two names, Johann Sebastian. Yeah, he was the lead singer of Skid Row. Yeah, 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 that's him, yeah. Sebastian Bach. You got it. Johann. Uh, this, this was the killer uh, Skid Row tune, Peasant Cantata. Uh, <laughs> Peasant Cantata, that's the name of it. Uh, so, so here's, here's the story on this thing. So 
peasant cantata was it, it, it was actually here's the original title Meron en nu erberkit which in Saxon means we have a new governor. Uh, 1742 is the year that this one had everyone's literal wigs in a twist. Um, well, that's earlier. Yeah, it's a little earlier than 1950. So we're, we're gonna we're gonna trace as best we can from 1742 to to your spot in the 1950s. But there's a full breakdown of this piece that I put in the show notes if you really want to get into the particulars. But this whole piece in 1742 was basically created for a tax collector's birthday. And so what? it contains a whole lot of in-jokes about rich people and poor people. And it's all done through musical references. So there's like different things that happen musically that are callbacks of sorts to different time periods and to other parts of Bach's catalog. It's, it's very much a you-had-to-be-there joke, but it is a joke nonetheless. And it does set the stage pretty nicely for what would become the humorous parody song, right? Taking something that sounds familiar and doing things to it to make references to other things, to popular culture. This all eventually evolves into the more common people's vernacular through one of my favorite securitous routes, church music. You probably know the Civil War song, John Brown's Body, right? Yes, I know that. I know that, yeah. So Christian churchgoers know it as the Battle Hymn of the Republic. But that was actually like the third iteration. First, it was it was a revival hymn, and then it was John Brown's Body, and then it was Battle Hymn of the Republic. I always heard that growing up that it was John Brown's Body first, but it actually did belong to the church initially. And this sort of thing continued all the way th- from the Civil War all the way through World War One. There's this old classic hymn that I don't know if you will know this one, but What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Have you ever heard that? Sure. Yeah, yeah okay, maybe. okay, yeah. What a friend we have in Jesus. So soldiers in World War One used to sing it as, when this lousy war is over. Ah. Where we're going to take our first rest stop and spend some serious time along the highway of tracing this lineage is going to be in the 1930s. And that's when parody takes a big step forward because of a certain band leader. Um, can you remind us what your nickname was for being skinny? Stick man. <laughs> I'm sorry to make you relive that again, but it's, it's all right. It's everything, pertinent. everything hurts these days. It's okay. It's, it's pertinent. So I was also, uh, often my skinniness is still brought up, but it was definitely brought up when I was a kid. Uh, so I relate. Um, another guy who relates is this guy, Lindley Armstrong Jones. Uh, he was given a different nickname instead of stick man. I guess he was around a lot of railroads and, he was so skinny, what people referenced were the the things they stuck in the railroad tracks to keep them in the ground, the spikes. The spikes, yeah. So people called him Spike. It only seems appropriate that a kid named Spike would learn to play the drums. He yeah. starts at 11, he has a band in his teenage years, and he gets to know a railroad chef who turns him onto the non-traditional drum set. This is a weird little side note. But at one point, he learns to sort of play the drums with pots and pans and forks and spoons. By his early 20s, Spike is getting jobs playing in pit orchestras. And he's even getting jobs playing on the radio in these pit orchestras. But these guys are all like musical workhorses. They just play the same songs night after night in a very traditional way. And so to blow off some steam, he gets these guys together like in their off time. And they would do goof-off versions of classic songs of the day. And then they'd get so tickled, they'd want to show their wives. So 
they'd record these things to tape. And long story short, one of these tapes get, gets out and they get a record deal. And Spike becomes leader of this crew. And that's how we get Spike Jones and his city slickers. And you now probably think when I say Spike Jones, you think of the, the filmmaker and the music video producer who, who actually named himself after this guy. Oh, no way. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. So, so huge, huge influence on popular culture, especially people who sort of bring a level of renegade or a sense of humor to their work. Um, you'll often hear people reference Spike Jones because Spike had this way of taking traditional orchestral music and doing funny stuff with it. And so there's no better way to illustrate this than this song that ends up becoming a hit for him called Cocktails for Two. A charming scene like this In some secluded rendezvous That overlooks the avenue with someone sharing a delight There's some bad cocktails for two As we enjoy a cigarette <laughs> To some exquisite chansonnet Two hands are sure to slice So you, you get the idea, right? So like, this was a song it's, that It's Col- so ridiculous Coleman Hawkins <laughs> had done this song Louis Armstrong had done this song So his orchestra gets up And does this song but then they have somebody making all these noises, and it's it's hilarious. Now, you have to step away from, from 2022, because now it feels very antiquated, right? But imagine right. being put yeah. into a formal environment and expecting the normal, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of heavy-handedness of an orchestral performance of a love song, and then all of a sudden you have a guy making noises and honking horns and you have these, you know, just all of that happening at the same time. People enjoy it. And it, he, he ends up sort of building a career out of this. Spike is an amazing character that we could spend a lot of time talking about. He dies young. He smokes himself to death. Uh, but before that happens, he has lots of musical permutations and he always, as a lot of these guys do, he always has this struggle where he makes his bread and butter early being silly. And so then he's not taken seriously as a musician or he doesn't feel that he is. He, at one point in his career, finances a quote unquote serious orchestra of his own as a side project, but nobody will come see them play. Oh, <laughs> they just want sad. the city slickers, right? Yeah. So like nobody wants to hear him just do normal stuff. And then, you know, we talk a lot on this show about, the displacement that happens when grunge shows up, right? Like that's a really famous thing. It's like hair metal disappeared overnight because Nirvana was on the cover of spin magazine or whatever. We don't talk about what happens to orchestral music when rock and roll shows up, but there's a a little bit of a similar thing that happens, right? Yeah. Um, Because his gag is being irreverent and rock and roll by definition is irreverent. So it sort of replaces his gag. Yeah, that would have dragged, right? It would have bummer. And it's not, you know, it's like I spent a lot of time thinking about innovation and, and how do you get it, you know, just in any context and how do you get ahead of the curve and how do you have the next big idea, right? And it's it's one of those things where he didn't think far enough. Like the idea that something that's not being directly irreverent can be irreverent by definition and come in and displace you is a really interesting thing, right? In, in terms of of looking at the trajectory of something. A lot of times, if you're the first, you're not the best. 
you would end up being the most successful. Right. It just doesn't work that way. Right. And timing, man. It's all timing. timing. And so when rock and roll becomes the sound of the day, he's out of his job, but he's already made his mark. He becomes this massive influence on the rest of what we're about to examine and discuss today. So I think I encountered him in the same sort of musicological sense and in the research sense that I encountered a lot of stuff, even in if, like in terms of early rock and roll. Um, and I also came in contact with him because of this comedy overlap of my interests, right? Where I was, you know, we talked about this with the, with the drummers versus the rest of the band episode where we talked about Gene Krupa. And, you know, I was discovering big band music because it was happening alongside the comedic boom in the 30s and 40s on the radio. And so Spike Jones gets weaved into that stuff because, in a sense, he is radio comedy. So sometimes you would get these collections that would have George Burns and Jack Benny and Fibber McGee and Molly, and they would have Spike Jones songs or Spike Jones references or something in them. So I think that's why I've always been more aware of him than somebody might be. He becomes this massive influence. Like, it can't really be or overstated. Um, and so I, I'm going to add a few folks in the timeline here that are that are sort of influenced by Spike Jones and carry us through the next few decades. Now, I will say in advance, I probably won't hit them all. So if I miss somebody, by all means, Murdoch, you jump in. And then if you are listening, send us an email. We are the story guys at gmail.com and, and drop in people that I might have missed. But here are a few names to know that are going to get us from orchestral silliness to rock and roll lyrical rebellion. Tom Lehrer. This dude is an OG. Okay, OG, and so incredibly smart. Mathematics at Harvard in the 50s and 60s, but also into musical theater. (laughs) It's like this really interesting character. And he has this ridiculous wit. So he starts recording dumbass songs and selling them on campus at Harvard. This is the original out of the trunk of my car guy. Like he literally is like selling them like outside his classroom. And slowly, these records start to spread across the U.S. One person gets it, shows his friends, friends have to have it, so on and so forth. And the songs are so edgy. I ache for the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Let our love be a flame, not an amber. I mean, I gotta say, I wasn't alive in 1959, but I can't imagine that. I mean, that that's a true underground record. <laughs> oh yeah. Do you ever hear that one coming out of your living room? No. <laughs> did you? Did you? Uh, did you ever hear uh, the Toppers' "Baby, Let Me Bang Your Box"? I wonder if this was a record that didn't have a label on it. Like... <laughs> and another thing that was getting passed around. Well, my baby gave a party the other night. The party was getting dead. I spied a piano in the corner. Looked at my baby and said, Baby, let me bang your box. There's, there's points for creativity, right? Like, you couldn't always just just come out and say it. So, uh, you know, it, it, it increased the lyricism. Yeah, but there's no subtlety with this thing. <laughs> well, Tom Lehrer, uh, much in this in the same way, is, is putting out more records like this. They don't get quite like that, but there is one called uh, Poisoning Pigeons in the Park. 
um, that he gets sort of known for. So you can uh, you can see where sort of the dark humor comes into play. Then you've got a guy named Stan Freeberg. Massive career with radio, TV, and cartoon voice work. And he even ends up taking over Jack Benny's show. So when Jack Benny like steps away wow. from television, Stan Freeberg is the guy that comes in. But his most enduring musical moment is a little song called I'm Getting Nothing for Christmas. I broke my bat on Johnny's head. Somebody snitched on me. I hit a frog in sister's bed. Somebody snitched on me. I spilled some ink on mommy's rug. I made Tommy eat a bug. Bought some gum with a penny slug. Somebody snitched on me. So I'm getting nothing for Christmas. Mommy and daddy are mad. I'm getting nothing. It's like listening to chipmunks. Yeah, it's got a real chipmunks vibe to it for sure. Um, and you know, I mean, chipmunks are an interesting, an interesting thing to bring up in this timeline, right? Because to a certain degree, that is musical parody. Like what they end up doing is just like speeding up popular songs. Like I had a uh, tape at some point in my childhood where they were like doing "I Love Rock and Roll" as the chipmunks. You know what I mean? And it's just it's the same song. It's just like sped up. Um, so I, you know, I, I do think that's an interesting. Uh, a place to touch base as well. But, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't parody, right? We're drawing the line from the parody into the comedy and then back to, you know, how do we start taking the actual song frameworks and changing the words, right? There's one more that we need to touch on that really is a true parody, and that's a guy, Alan Sherman. He he becomes yeah. famous for a song called Hello Mudda, Hello Fada. Hello Mudda, Hello, Fada. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining. And they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, oh, Brian, you, you like, you got this right out of my <sighs> amazing. I like looked it up and found it immediately. There was this comp comp that I had called Funky Favorites, and I can't figure out what the year is, but it had Monster Mash, Beep Beep, uh, Snoopy versus the Red Baron, the yeah. leader of the laundromat, Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini, My Dingling, and I think the first song on side two, being a boomer almost at this point of the record, was Hello Mudda, Hello Fada. That was... so. It, it, oh my gosh, that, that song. That's actually, the musically, that's a ballet from the opera La Gioconda. Uh, but what he does with it is he, he got a letter from his son from camp, and he thought it was so funny that he like sort of writes a exaggerated version of it and sets it to this music. You know, this might be the point where all of a sudden this idea of parody pushes itself all the way into the mainstream because that song goes number two on the Billboard charts and it wins yeah. a Grammy in 1964. What did it win a Grammy for? <laughs> for something like parody to find a real permanent place in the culture, a section in the music store, uh, a filing cabinet in the Library of Congress, uh, it needs curation. And it needs historical perspective. So all these guys have to be sort of put into order. And so 
this doesn't really break all the way into pop culture until you have someone there to champion it. And the scene gets a champion in 1970, and that champion's name is Barry Hansen. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Pair, Pair Networks. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get one of those up and running? Well, choose a website hosting company that makes it really easy. P-A-I-R, Pair. Pair Networks does just that. They have over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses, and not just in America, all over the world, right? So Pair makes it easy for you. It's a do-it-yourself website building tool. It's got features. It includes drag-and-drop page design, and they've guaranteed if you need a support technician, they're ready to help you whenever, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you're going to receive one free month of web hosting. So you can see for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting, and you can use the code QUICKSTART. That's Pair.com slash free, promo code QUICKSTART, to get started today. Barry Hansen was born in Minneapolis in the 40s. And he claims he still remembers when he was four years old and his dad brought home cocktails for two by Spike Jones. That song we uh-huh. listened to earlier. That's how big of an impact it had. When he's 12, he's in a thrift store and he finds thousands of 78s being cleared out for five cents a piece. And this is the beginning of what becomes later in his life a reportedly 300,000 record collection. 300,000 records. He gets a master's degree and he moves into a house with the guys in the band Spirit. This is the part what? that we don't. <laughs> what? What the hell just happened to this story? Aren't they the band that sued Led Zeppelin for for Stairway? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, I know Spirit. Yeah, that's a real thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's another rock and roll bedtime story we should probably talk about at some point. But let's just talk about Spirit for a moment. Um, Spirit is living in this house <laughs> with this guy, and they convince Barry Hansen to be their roadie. He is a roadie, briefly, for Spirit and for Canned Heat. What? Yeah, and then he parlays that into a gig to do A&R for some labels. Wow. And, and during this time, he's compiling comp discs, and he's also scoring himself a radio show. Like, I think this guy just knew how to work the angles. This is so much fun, this guy's life. So it starts as an oldies show, but he starts showcasing all of these oddities that he finds when he's going through these records, right? Like a lot of the stuff we just listened to. And the audience response to this stuff is huge. One night he plays this song about teenagers getting into an auto accident. And one of his coworkers comments that to play a song like that, the host would have to be, quote, demented. He's no longer Barry Hansen. He is now Dr. Demento. Oh, get the form of Ayada. No way. That's awesome. Oh, every week I bring you two hours of mad music and crazy. 
flimsy comedy from out of the archives and off the wall. This weekly feature Alan Sherman, Bill Cosby with his new album, Howie Mandel with a bit of his, along with Frank Zappa, Eddie Murphy, and some special treasures from the archives. Some of the very best of the thousands of... See, you already hear Alan Sherman, right? So, I mean, that's that's an immediate one that he jumps to. Uh, but this is how it sounds. If you've never heard this show, like I know for me and you, this brings back memories, right? Well, tell me about when you discovered Dr. Demento. You know, I I didn't live anywhere where it was syndicated, Brian. I had, there were people that had tapes. So uh, people were, were dubbing tapes for each other. So I, I got some tapes. I think I was in high school. Demento himself has said in interviews that the part of the way this show worked and the way it spread was through high school boys. What worked was <laughs> it would get syndicated. In two, one of two things would happen. Either either what happened to you would happen where they tape it and pass it around, right? Or it, it would be in your town and it would be syndicated, but it would be on typically places syndicated it in the 70s and 80s on Sunday night. So Sunday night, the weekend's winding down. You're in your bedroom. You listen to Dr. Mitchell's show. You hear some crazy stuff. What's the first thing you do Monday morning? You're walking into school. You're with your buddies. You're talking about Dr. Demento. Yeah, and if you were my age, at the same time, you had blank cassettes laying around, and you were recording stuff off the radio. One particular high school boy, though, was not supposed to be listening. Uh, he got caught playing the Demento show, and his mom shut him down. But you know what they say about forbidden fruit. This is what happened in my life, too. My parents didn't like me listening to the radio, and well, things went sideways. Uh, so this kid not only kept listening to it, he decided he was going to get played on the Dr. Demento show. So he wrote a song about his family's car and he sent it to Dr. Demento. Dr. Demento at the time is getting 30 to 50 tapes a week, but something about this tape catches his eye or catches his ear and <laughs> he decides to play it. Now you won't find a bragging about my big green station wagon or telling about the track. It's 16-year-old Weird Al singing, which is just so funny to hear him at such a young age. Yeah. God, think about sticking to your guns and doing what you like to do. Well, you know, that's the really interesting story about him. The famous story is that he was in architecture school, which I don't know if you yeah. went to anybody that was an architect, went to school with anybody that was in architecture school, but... My buddies lived with a guy named Beekman, Yeesh. and Beekman was a was in architecture school. And I just remember there was like these constant stories about how tortured uh, of an existence that was, and how it just yeah. ate up your whole entire life. And Beekman would just sort of like wander in and shotgun beers and wander back out because he had to go back to do his his architecture stuff. So I mean, he this isn't necessarily the career path, but he starts doing this sort of because he thinks it's funny and he loves the show. And the other thing we need to talk about is. His choice of instrument. The freaking accordion. Oh, my God. He tells this story of playing coffee houses in California as a college student where there'd be all these guys that would get up with acoustic guitars, and then he'd wait for his turn, and then he'd come on stage with an accordion, and he would like just play the theme to 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, 
I saw referenced in interviews that Al taught himself how to play the rock and roll style by yeah. playing the entirety of Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, like by ear, figuring it out. Oh, man. Like the whole Boy, record, not the song, the whole something. record. Yeah, that's something, too. And, and the, the use of that instrument, something that he still does to this day when he will take modern songs and sing them in a polka format. And, and in that, I should point out, see, he's changing the music and not the lyrics for the parody, right? Which is part of what yes. we talked about at the beginning. That's a tactic that's both old and new, and we'll talk about it even in the current 2022 context of it all later. But for now, Al sends Demento his first song, and it's this dumb song, Belvedere Cruising. And then he goes to college, and kids in his dorm are calling him Weird Al because they're mocking him. But he owns it, uh, probably because yeah. he has an accordion. That's and he, awesome. He turns it in, into his on-air name at the campus radio station. So, Kindred Soul. And in 79, he's working there. And there's this big song on the radio called My Sharona. And this is the famous story that when we started talking about doing an episode around Dr. Demento or Weird Al, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's be the, the bathroom, my baloney story. Uh, but apparently, he wants to make a joke version of this song and call it My Baloney, and, or My Bologna. And he records his accordion in the bathroom across from the station because of the acoustics. And then he sends it to Demento, because he's already gotten on with Belvedere Cruising, and there's this positive response. And it just so happens, guess who comes to play on tour at the California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, where <laughs> Al is attending school? It's The Knack? I don't know. The Knack likes this song so much, so he gets to meet Doug Figer from The Knack. And he tells him, hey, I made, I'm made. i the guy who made this parody. And Doug Figer likes it so much that he takes it to Capitol Records. Oh, my gosh. How, you got to be kidding me. That's how that happened? That's how that happens. He gets distribution from Capitol Records for My Bologna through the knack, not in spite of. And now he's got a template. In September of 1980, he goes into the studio with Demento on the show live, and he says he's going to do a new parody on the air. He does another one, Rides the Bus. And the, yeah. the legend goes that here's where he meets John Schwartz. Now, if you're a nerd like me who knows a lot about Weird Al and has seen him live a lot, you know that his sidekick, basically the, the Robin to his Batman, is this guy John Bermuda Schwartz, right? You get the joke. Um, and this is where they meet. So <laughs> they're outside the session. Like, he's just hanging out ready to go in with Demento. And John's out there, and he, he says, hey, I'll go in and beat on the accordion case for percussion. I'm a drummer. Trust me. And that seals the deal. They they basically become musical partners for the rest of their careers. And then, and I didn't realize this. I would have loved to have seen this. In 81, Demento gets a touring stage show, and he takes Al on it. I had no idea that happened. He's got this manager, Jay Levy, who tells him he could make it his job and offers to help him find a band to take on the road. He's like, you're doing this. You're coming out with the accordion. He's like, we'll get you a band. You can make this a whole thing. <laughs> he helps him put together a band. And as soon as they have that band put together, he gets them an opening slot with missing persons. Remember that band? <laughs> Do you hear me? <laughs> Do you care? Yeah, of course I do, man. And then the big parody hits start coming. I love Rocky Road. Ricky, which is a Lucille Ball-themed send-up of Tony Basil's Mickey. Um, and he is another case of early MTV playing to his favor. 
uh, he breaks the top 100 videos and he decides, okay, I don't need a job. This, this will be my job. And he has made it his job for the last 40 years. Um, real interesting things happen fast for him. Quickly, he gets his own specials on MTV. By like 87, he's made his own mockumentary. He gets to tour with the Monkees in the mid-80s. Oh, I didn't know that. And by the late 80s, he creates one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, is, is UHF? Is it your have have we ever talked about UHF? You and I never talked about it. I don't know how that's possible because it's an incredibly important film uh, for me and for my upbringing. And, I mean, I can sit here and quote a lot of it, like, call me Mr. Butterfingers. <laughs> and uh, I'll can sing you the whole song about Spatula City. Um, I love the John Wayne send up where he says, I still all the time will say badgers, badgers. We don't need no stinking badgers. I know. And it's so it's, it, it became so like sticky with everything that everyone would say that I think some people picked that up and didn't know that they were saying a line from that movie. It, well, it, yeah. it was, it's a failure when it, when it comes out. Right. It, and it's funny because if oh, you look at yeah. the, if you look at the year in the summer that it, it comes out like in July of 89 and that's the same time as like one of the Indiana Jones movies, the Michael Keaton Batman movie, like yeah. Ghostbusters two, like all that stuff drops on the same within the same few weeks. And so it just ends up getting buried. It's gone on to cult classic status and it features some early, early performances for both Fran Drescher and Michael Richards who go on obviously to have a big nineties. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but man, I love that movie. And I, I think it's appropriate here to point out something that parody can do that we haven't really talked about yet, but something that Al specifically did in this movie in terms of film, but on a much grander scale for popular music as a whole. And that is, he creates this sort of wacky historical decoder ring for kids who are fascinated by pop culture. Yeah, wow, what a great, I mean, that's a great way of framing it. Well, and he's always identified as a Christian. I don't know if you know that. So he basically just made PG-rated content. So he would take, you know, these these dangerous quote-unquote rock songs, by of the day but he would you know be singing about i mean he had there was a one of the record labels took all his songs about food and put them on one cassette and called it the food album and that was one of the first cassettes i owned uh i still remember walking around with that tape and what the cover looked like and it had you know the i love rocky road and um all those ridiculous songs uh on it and that's how I learned about all those. Like I went backwards. Like I, there are still songs today where like my first inclination is to sing the wrong lyrics because those are the lyrics that I knew first. I didn't necessarily, I remember like hearing like a surgeon and then oh, yeah. going backwards and hearing like a virgin and being like, Oh, <laughs> wait, what? How amazing that it took you. It was a gateway for you. That's, a, it's so funny. Well, another great example of this is, is MacArthur's park. Like, I, I didn't know Donna Summer or Richard Harris when I was 10, but I knew what Jurassic Park was. It was the biggest movie in the world. It, right. it, and so I could understand that this silly song was referencing something else, and somebody had to walk me through. Well, it's a, it's a song about a cake melting. I'm like, wait, what? Um, and so then I got to decode from there. Here's another thing you'll laugh at me for, is that whenever I hear Under the Bridge, well, for the first several years that I would actively hear Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I would wait for it to turn in to give it away because 
on his record that comes out in the early 90s, he does a song about the Flintstones where he takes those two songs and mashes them together. So the first part is under the bridge. And it's something about sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner in the city I live in, the city of bedrock. Like it's a whole thing. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it turns into um, something where he's like, got to, got to, got to give it to Barney Rubble. You know, like, I mean, it's the, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Oh my gosh. But, you know, that's how I learned about the Red Hot Chili Peppers when I was 10 or 9 or 8 or however old, right? I mean, I wasn't listening to Blood yeah. Sugar Sex Magic, as you can imagine. So I, I have I have done a lot of that historical, like going back and unlearning and relearning facts about things. And, and I mean, I remember like Greg Kinband, like because he does this I Lost on Jeopardy. Yeah. Which was it's actually a really funny song, and I love Jeopardy, it's the game really, show. So I lost on Jeopardy song. was huge, but then I had to like try to understand why there was a song that had the word Jeopardy in it. <laughs> yeah, that really that was the song I really liked. I liked that one a lot. So one thing we haven't talked about with parody in general is you know in this day and age of high powered lawyers and reputation management, how does somebody like Al not get sued all the time? I mean, I know. This is always the interesting thing to talk about. Well, there's two reasons. And one of them is the First Amendment, because the fair use copyright laws protect parody. Right. But as an extra layer of protection, Al, and this goes back to sort of this salt of the earth, Christian upbringing sort of thing that he's always had and never lost. He he goes and gets permission from the artist anyway. Did That's you know this correct. about him? Yes. Yeah. And most artists love the attention. I, do you want to guess who is on record as saying that an owl parody was when they knew, quote unquote, they had made it? Oh, no. I don't know. Who are those people? Uh, Kurt Cobain said that. <laughs> <laughs> but this does mean there That's have really been artists cute. There have been artists who have said no. Do you want a short list of some of the artists who have said no? Yeah, or do you want to guess? You can probably said. guess. Um... Celine Dion. <laughs> she wasn't on the list I saw. Uh, yeah, go you know, ahead. These are your normal folks, right? Prince, uh, Zeppelin. There's a story about Weezer uh, not allowing Buddy Holly into one of his polkas. Wow. Um, Paul McCartney. I like this one. True story. Would not okay use of live and let die to be. <laughs> I'm really sad we missed this one. It was going to be chicken pot pie. <laughs> Yes, I remember. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and Paul, I always thought it was an ur- urban legend, but it, it's true. No, this is true. Paul said he didn't want to do it because he's a vegetarian, which ironically, right. I, Al is also a vegetarian or even a vegan. Chicken pot pie. Chicken pot pie. Like, I'm just thinking about how awesome that would have been. Um, but there's also lots of stories. Yeah, I know. We, we, let's let that one linger for a second. When, when, you're, when you're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop thinking about the whole song. <laughs> How silly it is. There's all these stories. Pot pie. <laughs> There's all these stories where a label or management team will tell Al No on behalf of the artist, and then the artist gets pissed. Like this has happened a bunch. 
Like there was a dust up with Coolio around this, and of course he he would go on yeah. to do uh, yeah. to do Amish Paradise. Uh, Lady Gaga, there's like her management tries to shut it down, and then she's like, "No, I love Al," and he does perform this way, and she's she said that perform this way felt like a validation to her as an artist. Like she like really feels strongly about it, and it's uh, as a positive. Uh, James Blunt. Uh, his management tried to stop uh, something from happening, and and they ended up making "You're Pitiful" instead of "You're Beautiful" anyway. Yes. Oh my God. There's another crazy one where Daniel Powder, who had this song that was really hot when I was in in radio in the early 2000s, he was a one hit wonder, and he never did anything else. But the song was called "Bad Day" because you had a bad day. Had a bad day. Yeah, and yeah. he he did a version of that, and Daniel Powder's people. Reputation management, they were concerned. It's like, really? You could have used the boost. Can you? <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, Weird Al's been the king of pop music parody for 40 years and counting as we trace this history of spoof and satire. And it's interesting to note that while there have been a lot of other parodies and people performing them in the last four decades, there's not been a singular person who appears poised to carry that torch at this point. Can you think of anybody I'm missing? Is there like a new king of parody or queen of parody? No, not that I know. And I mean, man, we are flooded with music in, in every direction. Well, yeah. And yeah. so this is, to that point, this is what I think has happened. I think if we were to add another name on the flowchart, from Spike to Lehrer to Freeberg and Sherman, and then to Dr. Demento as the curator and onto Weird Al, I, I think the next entry is basically internet culture. Yeah, like how does like mashups are its own thing? That's its own know? thing, right? That's sort of a parody. That's a great point, and I know you love a good mashup. We talk about those a lot. Um, and and now everybody has a megaphone, and they can do their own parody, right? I mean, if they want to do one, they can upload it in ten minutes, right? You can find the karaoke track on YouTube. You can run it through your computer. I mean, you're done. And we've yeah. seen it all over YouTube, but now I think TikTok brings it into even sharper focus for a variety of reasons, because when you smash a song onto a short visual, you can actually parody something without changing anything. It's yeah. like, I think I referenced this on the show, but I literally talked to a friend of mine who said her mom is a realtor who uses, who does all these like TikTok videos with um, just using the clip of the ludicrous song where he's like, who's your housekeeper? What you keep in your house? <laughs> and that's like a thing on, she said on realtor TikTok, right? I mean, that's not what Ludacris originally intended. So it's sort of a parody, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the other thing is that it's fun. And the thing I think that uh, uh, Zuckerberg or people that don't understand what's currently going down with that company is that TikTok is entertaining for most people. And that's why people use it. And Facebook is no longer entertaining. Well, and to bring it full circle, remember how I pointed out at the beginning that the earliest musical parodies had nothing to do with the lyrics? Right. They were all about lampooning the style and the instrumentation. And now we see tons of this in the form of YouTube musicians making a living by literally just restylizing other people's music. It's it's sometimes called genre flipping. There's a lot of folks we could point to who do this, but one who comes to mind for me is this guy, Alex Melton. Have you encountered this guy? No. What is what does he do with them? Redheaded thirty something who basically took his love for Blink one eighty two and turned it into a shtick, and he'll take pop songs and do them in different styles. And so sometimes it's Vanessa Carlton or Journey shoved into a Blink one eighty two sounding template. Uh, sometimes it's Panic of the Disco and Green Day turned into pop country oh. tunes. Don't want to be an American idiot. 
So, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's sort of the same thing we were watching Bach do, right? Where you're taking a style or the way instruments are used and you're twisting the you're twisting the meaning by co-opting it. It's it's yeah. it's a really interesting art form and it's starting you're starting to see it more and more and you're seeing some people like this guy do it really really well. It's an interesting exercise both in, you know, what does what does the style of something or the genre of something play into the meaning of it to the culture and to the individual? But also for me it shows this concept I always state of like you know a good song is a good song or a song that has good bones like if you can take a song like American Idiot and make it work in all of these different sort of formulaic genres uh, the core of the song is is pretty well written right it's like having a good foundation to the house oh yeah what a great analogy to the the foundation of the house which is crazy I, I, I always see definitely like it's not clickbaity but it definitely gets lots of clicks is when you have bluegrass versions of things that are not bluegrass. Oh, man. There's some really good ones. Darling Side does this great version of 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we missed some parody purveyors here, so if there's somebody who deserves an honorable mention, hit us up. We are the story guys at gmail.com. And if you want to get involved uh, in this show or know about other stuff that we've got going on, you can always check out our website, too. We are thestorygues.com. What do people need to keep doing until next time? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.